The Reminiscing in Time podcast is brought to you by the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music Centennial Committee and Office of Communications. Join the celebration online at music.indiana.edu. I'm John Christopher Porter, and this is Reminiscing in Time from the IU Jacobs School of Music. Although the School of Music hired its first dance instructor in 1951 to train dancers for opera productions, it wasn't until 1959 when Gilbert Reed, formerly of the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo, brought IU Ballet into prominence with its first performance of Tchaikovsky's The Nutcracker and the department has enjoyed increasing success ever since. In part two of If These Curtains Could Talk, we'll hear from two key figures at IU Ballet Theater, world-renowned choreographer and teacher Michael Vernon, and former Boston Ballet Corps member and current chair of ballet at Jacobs, Sarah Roth. We'll also catch up with recent ballet alum and rising filmmaker, Robert Stephen Mack. Let's get started. Michael, thank you for joining us on Reminiscing in Time. Um, you've been in the Jacobs School of Music's Department of Ballet for quite some time. Can you tell our listeners, how did your association with the IU School of Music begin and when did you first come here? If I can answer in reverse order, I started here in 2006. Um, and to go back even further, I worked with a former chair of this department, Jean-Pierre Bonfou, for many years at Chautauqua. He was the director of the um, Chautauqua Ballet Program, which is very well known. Um, Mm -hmm. um, It's upstate New York for those of your listeners who don't know where it is. And it's um, a wonderful sort of um, liberal arts summer community. And um, one day he said to me, because he knew that I was teaching freelance a lot and being based in New York, you know, it comes with its own set of problems and pressures. He says, Michael, you know, um, I think they're looking for a chair at Indiana University. And um, Mm -hmm. have you ever thought about taking a position like that? And so I followed up with it. And at that time, it turns out there was um, a vacancy for a chair, but the School of Music had decided not to go ahead with the search and to wait a little while for one reason or another. And then um, I was, so I was teaching in what we call an open studio, which is a, a, a studio teaching dance where it's open. That means you don't have to belong or you don't have to, you know, audition. You just come and take class. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of professional ballet dancers um, from New York City Ballet, ABT, from companies all over the world came and took my class there. And I've been teaching there for a long time. And that, you know, was, it was difficult because when it mm-hmm. snowed, they shut the studio and you you don't get paid. You know, you get paid on a commission basis, basically. So it had its own set of problems. And then one day um, I finished class without any warning. They said, oh, there's a phone call for you. So um, I went to the phone and there was Violette Verdi on the phone. Oh, Michael, how are you? You know, and 
Um, I'd known Violette for a number of years for one reason or another. And she said, Michael, they're having a search here. And I really want you to, um, to contact them and come and have an interview. Cause I mm -hmm. think that you're at the top of their choices. Anyway, so um, I decided to follow up and because what could I lose just by, you know, researching it. I auditioned and I met Gwen. And at the time there was a, a very small permanent faculty here. So mm -hmm. the, um, the interview process was taken, not just from the ballet department, but the people on the search committee came from throughout the School of Music. And so I had a number of interviews and um, it didn't go smoothly. There was a real tragedy that happened. I was here for two days. You know, mm -hmm. one of the most tragic incidents that the School of Music, I'm sure, has ever had to deal with. And that is the um, airplane crash. And that happened, uh, so I was here for, I think, a Thursday and Friday. Um, mm -hmm. And um, of course, on, uh, so it happened on the Thursday night. So I had some interviews on the Thursday and then the Friday, the school was basically in mourning and yeah. um, very sad, very emotionally moving time. And yes. that's one of the things I will not forget. Anyway, so I came back, so that was like in March and I came back later in May um, over a weekend and brought my partner with me so we could mm -hmm. check out Bloomington and everything just went according to plan. So I'm sorry that was such a long-winded answer, John. No, that's quite all right. Um, at that point in Violette's career, was she um, beginning to uh, relieve herself of responsibilities? Was she looking towards uh, slowing down in, in her teaching career? Well, that's a really interesting question because, you know, she's one of the most well-known and most admired and most beloved um, icons, is right. the word I would use, of the, mm -hmm. the ballet world which is pretty yeah. small. I mean, everyone knows Violette and Violette, of course, knows everyone and has worked with them. And the answer really is no. And she, <laughs> she, would, she would come to me constantly. Um, we got on really well. So I let me start like that. Oh, Michael, you know, I need a few days, you know, so-and-so wants some Tyler <laughs> Peck, would like some coaching. And, oh, you know, the School of American, because the, the real name of the um, school is School of American Ballet which was the school which was attached to New York City Ballet, which was Balanchine's company. Mm -hmm. and the School of American had called and, and Kay, who's the director, Kay Mazo, the famous ballerina, directs it now. Oh, Kay wants me to teach a few classes. Of course, Violette, you should go. And then she would go to, to the Royal Ballet um, every like May, and then she'd go on from there to the Paris Opera Ballet and do mm. guest teaching. I mean, she worked with some of the greatest dancers you know in the world so no and I think that's actually what kept her going you know we all need some outside influence to keep ourselves interested in this profession which is really geared to the young yes um uh so um yes so no she didn't slow down she didn't slow down at all mm -hmm. until like life overtook her you mentioned uh, Violette's, um, I guess, taste or hunger for, for getting out into the professional world, even having been a faculty member here. So in your personal experience, Michael, you have performed and choreographed and taught all over the world. Um, how does one's personal world experience help shape, mold, influence one's students? That's a very good question. I think that in order to... Um, in order to teach over the world, in order to reach people, 
you know, I don't have formal training as a teacher, mm-hmm. but I don't think one needs formal training as a teacher. What I need, what I think one needs to do is to be able to communicate, be sensitive to other people's needs, whether it's a principal dancer or a beginning student, mm-hmm. and reach out and instinct. See, I think teachers are instinctive. Yeah. And I also remember, you know, one of my um, interviews, I turned around to Gwim in, in the middle of our... Um, um, they were grilling me, not grilling me in a bad way, you know, but <laughs> asking me questions. Um, and um, I turned around to him and said, you know, I'm not really a teacher. He looked shocked and I said, I think you can present knowledge. You can understand the person that you're trying to coach or help or, mm-hmm. you know, quote unquote teach. But really people, ha- you present knowledge and people learn. People have to be able to learn. You have to be open. And I yes. think that is the most, the best um, best sort of relationship you can have with your student, whether it's to be a professional or um, an amateur, a, a young person who's just starting out. And mm-hmm. I think that's what, that openness is what allowed me to come here and just bring the same thing. You know, I teach every day as I see what the people need. Mm-hmm. And my class, I have a certain frame of mind of what I believe ballet should be. Um, and I, has a very strong frame of mind. Um, and I've been very much influenced by what I've seen in this country and what I've been taught in this country. Um, because the American way is, the grandfather of the American way really is Balanchine. Yes. And so even though I never worked with Balanchine, I worked with a number of people who were very, very close to him mm-hmm. and who have influenced me. So um, I would like to think that I sort of carry on the tradition, although tangentially. I was lucky to have some, I mean, great teachers. Yeah. For example, Dame Ninette de Valois, who founded the Royal Ballet. We always mm-hmm. called her Madame. Mm. So Madame was one of, she, she taught me, she didn't teach for much longer. I was like one of the, at the Royal Ballet School, I was like one of the last years to be taught by her. Mm-hmm. And we had a teacher um, who was a world, uh, dance with Diaghilev, um, wow. world famous, and that was Leonid Massine. And then I just had other teachers um, in London. You know, mm-hmm. there's a great tradition of teaching and um, and ballet in London. And then coming to this country, I was lucky to be put in touch. It's all like just happened with Andrea Glevsky, you know, who was, mm-hmm. who Balanchine really made famous. Edward Villela, Stanley Williams, who was most probably the most influential person in my life. I never studied with him per se, mm-hmm. but Edward Villela had a hip injury and he went to London and he had a hip replacement and he came back and he went back to class after he'd stopped performing. And he went back to class with this man, Stanley Williams, who Balanchine had brought from Denmark. I just was mesmerized by his class. I couldn't believe this musicality and this approach and this um, intellectual approach to ballet with and yet still being very very um uh physical and so yes so stanley um influenced me a lot and then just dancers i'd work with for example heather watts came to my class so heather Mm. had um i mean a wonderful way of moving and she came to my class just before she retired and so i had a chance to work with her and what i think makes a good teacher i think is i learn from every single class so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm open enough to, you know, learn something. I don't just 
teach. You know, I, yeah. I, I describe every class as a journey, a journey of exploration, yes. And you know, in ballet, we do the same exercises day after day. And I think mm -hmm. one of the um, most important things that a teacher has to do is to make all this repetition not repetitive, you know. So you, we, we make the repetition as a way of really understanding the main purpose of each exercise. It's so important across the board. You know, I think of brass players, I'm a trumpet player, and daily routine, as humdrum as it may be, is so important. If you don't have your daily routine and focus on the fundamentals every day, then, then you're toast as a musician, you're toast as a ballerina. Right. Right. And it's really important to make it not Monday, to make every class special. Yeah. You know, they, there's a thing called special classes. Sometimes it means like the most advanced students, and sometimes it means just like a master class. But I always tell my students that every class should be a special class because, you know, you blink and another 10 years have gone by. Yeah. Dancers, you know, they have to take advantage of their youth. How, how does our model at the Jacobs School? Um, resemble a professional company, how does it differ? Is it really putting a student into place to, to leap right into a professional career immediately after graduation? Yes, I think so. I think so. And I think it depends on the student too. You know, some, some of our students are really ready for professional experience when they first join. And yeah. some people aren't and they become ready while they're here. We um, mold them into, you know, becoming professional dancers. And um, yes, and then with the addition of their outside fields, they just have added, um, they get an added confidence and an added amount of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that turns into a self-confidence. Would you say that our model is um, pretty unique compared to other conservatories? Or, or would you say that it's somewhat similar? There are one or two other to be honest, one or two other institutions and organizations which are similar, not quite the same. Ours is unique in the sense that it really focuses on ballet. We say classical ballet, but classical ballet isn't quite the right um, fitting uh, uh, nomenclature for what we teach. But I would say classical slash neoclassic ballet, uh -huh. because the American style is really based very much on the classical tradition, but it slightly has a more modern feel. And that's always what I've gravitated to. So, you know, it's about bringing the history to the future because ballet tends to attract a lot of people who are very traditional. And the, I think the one of the most important things of our time is to bring ballet into the, our times in right. terms of technique, as well as in terms of content. I look at our theater, the opera and ballet theater. Ballet and opera intersect more often than your average patron might realize, I think. Um, describe some of your collaborative occasions here with our opera theater for our listeners. I know you've worked on several opera productions that have had ballet elements. Oh, I know. I, I, I have to say, um, it's, it's, it's always been one of my loves. Not necessarily but opera per se, but when I was growing up um, in London and I was at the Royal Ballet School, I was really lucky because there's a very small, so the, the opera house, Covent Garden Opera House, 
mm-hmm. um, you know, is, is devoted half to the Royal Ballet and half to the Royal Opera. I so see. they work in tandem. So there was an opera ballet in London, which had mm-hmm. its own, you know, dancers, but it was very small. It was about five or six of, you know, males and five or six females, which wasn't large. And, you know, it's a huge stage and they needed a lot of dancers in some of the operas. So they never like hired independent dancers or professional dancers like they do at the Met here in New York, for example. So instead they used students from the Royal Ballet School. So we were like advanced students. And so I got a chance to dance in many operas and I danced with many like famous, I mean, not personally, but you know, while many famous divas were singing on the stage and I, I just loved dancing in the operas. It became like iconic for me. Um, and they used me a lot. So when I came here, I was really excited to be able to have the opportunity to collaborate. And I've worked on yeah quite a number of operas here and um, I've really enjoyed it. And I've enjoyed bringing the dancers here into that milieu, into that environment. And I know that singers learn so much from the dancers and the dancers learn so much from the singers. And I personally, I have a history from um, working with actors in the UK, um, you know, teaching them how to dance in plays and stuff like that. But um, I enjoyed working with the singers here. And so we didn't use, always use dancers in the operas. We used the singers and I love teaching them and helping them. Like I'm looking at a poster right now of Vincent. And I remember yeah. teaching, you know, the, the, um, the singers and Vincent how to, I would say move, it wasn't really dancing. Right. That was a great experience, you know. And I know a number of, of other faculty here who have experience in choreography like Sasha and Christiane have also mm-hmm. um, choreographed for the opera, especially, well, I know, you know, um, Sasha did a West Side Story and yes. uh, Christiane has choreographed Hansel and Gretel, for example. And I'm not sure what else, but I know, I think Full Stop maybe. Yeah, I did a production of Full Stop here too. Yes, yeah, so uh, I've really enjoyed it and it's fun. And it's a learning experience, and that's really why they're here, learning experiences. The Nutcracker has been, even before your time with Jacobs, the centerpiece of our season for many, many years. What do you feel makes your personal touch on this canonical work so resonant and enduring with our community? I guess exactly what, just that, just my view of the Nutcracker. It's certainly traditional. So my first... um, version of the Nutcracker, as it were, was in Tampa in like, I guess in the 80s. And then I did um, another iconic version. I did it, I just built on one from the other for the Aglevsky Ballet, which we performed for many years. And then I sort of, when I came here, you know, Gwyn asked me if I would re-choreograph the Nutcracker using the same production values, that is the same sets and costumes Mm-hmm. as Jacques had been using, because he'd choreographed the version before. Mm-hmm. So um, that's what I did. So I, I um, transferred my vision into his, his vision as best I could. What you just see is, what you talked about earlier is sort of um, um, a result of my experiences, you know, with ballet, with the Nutcracker, and also with, just with theater. Mm-hmm. I was always very interested in theatre and, um, for example, in the, back in London, when um, I didn't have money as a student, I worked as a dresser and I was really, really lucky because I worked mm-hmm. as a dresser 
at the National Theatre. Wow. Um, and Sir Lawrence was, you know, Lawrence Olivier was mm -hmm. performing then. And the person that I had to dress personally was Anthony Hopkins. My and goodness. so I had a real insight in, you know, into wow. the highest level of theatre you could ever imagine. And it stuck mm -hmm. to me to this day. And I think what I bring to it and what I learned from dancing as an apprentice with the Royal Ballet was standards. The standards mm -hmm. were all so high. Every, you know, every aspect of production values was so high. From the way, you know, the stage managers talked to the audience, to the curtain calls. I mean, mm -hmm. everything became important. And I hope that's part of my experience. I brought that to uh, the Nutbuck. I feel that this has run its course and that it's time, you know, for a new version and this will be someone else's. Can you leave us in this segment of our episode with a particularly fond memory of your time at Jacobs, be it humorous, poignant, emotional? Well, I've got to say, I think the most poignant moment was Violette's passing. She was so great. Um, and she taught me so much, actually, more than she knows, more than she knew, because she was just so open. But then I just listened to her in her classes and in her coaching. She was a wonderful coach. She remembered so much. She knew so much. So it was great to listen with her. And I think um, my very first program that I directed, that I um, um, brought to the Jacobs, I think the very first program was sort of a great view into the future. You know, I got Julie Kent and Damien Watzel, who are both connected to IU through having been guests. Dance, they danced as guests in uh, The Nutcracker. And I brought them out because I felt that we didn't really need guest dancers dancing yeah. with the majors because I envisioned the standard would be going up. I wanted to thank them. And so I brought them out to do one of Jerome Robbins' works. Um, um, other dancers, which is a part of a wonderful part of a, and we brought a pianist, which we had to because of the Robbins uh, Foundation insisted. Um, we had to bring a pianist who'd played for it um, with American Ballet Theatre in mm -hmm. New York. And then I did a ballet um, called Cathedral, where Espen, funnily enough, was the guitarist on stage. Yes, and we did um, a piece of Jacques. Um, Yes, and we did Allegro Brilliant, which was, I've always believed we should do at least one Balanchine Ballet in each program because it just teaches the dancers so much and it's so musical and so important, therefore, for a school of music to present his works. So we did Allegro Brilliant. And then the woman who we chose to dance the lead role became had a really interesting career and she's just retired now from as a principal for Miami City Ballet, which is one of the foremost uh, regional companies in this country. And then mm -hmm. the other thing that I was the most proud of is, I, is a ballet called Fanfare, which is also by Jerome Robbins. Fanfare is basically uh, Benjamin Britten's Guide to the Orchestra, but with <laughs> dancers. And yes. it was just, I mean, I felt it was like a pinnacle of my <laughs> tenure as chair um, with this department. Because um, it's such a great ballet and it's so important musically because, you know, they go through all the instruments and they each right. play their part and then it comes together. And he did that choreographically, 
with dancers too. So I can picture it. That's that's such an amazing concept for for a ballet. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I was. I really loved it. Michael Vernon, thank you for spending the time with us today and reminiscing in time and for everything that you give to the School of Music. My pleasure. Thank you, John. My name is Robert Stephen Mack, and I'm from Irvine, California. I recently graduated from the Jacobs School of Music with a degree in ballet, as well as an honors degree in history and a minor in classics. I started dancing when I was 13 years old. I never really thought that I would go into ballet specifically, but I was very passionate about performing in general, and I, I did a lot of that. I did all sorts of musical theater, I did some tap, because I was inspired by Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly. And somewhere along the line, someone told me that if I really did enjoy dancing, I should try some ballet, uh, just as, as a way to sort of train. And I didn't really think much of it, because uh, ballet was, was not ever on my radar. But then I wound up in a dance class in PE, and uh, the teacher takes a look at my feet and my legs, and uh, she gets this wild look in her eye, and she says, oh my God, your feet, your legs. She made an appointment for me at, at, at a local ballet studio, and the rest is history. Anyway, I did that seriously throughout high school, every single day after class, and I knew that I, I wanted to make something of a career at it, um, but I also realized that it wasn't the only thing in my life, and, and I wanted to go to college and get my education and pursue, uh, pursue other things as well. And so I was faced with the problem of how to dance at a high level uh, while also getting a degree. And there just aren't many college programs that focus on ballet. So when my uh, teacher in California, Diane Lordson, suggested that I check out IU, which had the best ballet program in the country, she said, um, I was immediately intrigued. I wasn't at all deterred by the winters. I, I actually rather like the snowy winters. And I came here sometime in February or March, and they were rehearsing uh, spring ballet. I saw their work, and they were doing some balancing ballets. And it was, it was just so impressive that I had a feeling that IU was where I wanted to be. So I wound up here about two years later, and uh, haven't, uh, haven't regretted it for a single day. Uh, here at IU, I was exposed to such amazing instruction, uh, not just technically, but also artistically, and such great repertoire as well. I feel very lucky to have been able to do uh, The Concert by Jerome Robbins. I feel lucky that I've been able to perform roles in, in Dark Elegies by Anthony Tudor, in Mark Morris ballets, um, Christopher Wilden's Carousel. Of course, being something of an actor at heart, I think my favorite roles would, would also be uh, Drosselmeyer in The Nutcracker, uh, Arabian, uh, Russian. I love those sort of bravura roles, or those roles that, that require some kind of character. And the funny thing was that at, at Jacobs, even though it has this reputation of, of being a very serious ballet program for dedicated ballet students, and that's what it is. Everybody here has a real drive to become 
uh, excellent at ballet and, and to have a, a ballet career. They were also very supportive of my outside interests. Sarah Roth knew that I was a history major and was very supportive of uh, the different history, history projects that I would do, whether it would be like a history of the ballet department or uh, a history of, of the way that, that the Soviet Union used ballet as a means of, of propaganda as, as well as, as diplomacy uh, during cultural exchanges with the U.S. in the 1960s, or if it was my film projects. At IU, I was really able to marshal the resources, not just of Jacobs, but of the wider university to uh, fulfill my goals in filmmaking. Now, this didn't come out of a vacuum. I've been interested in films for as long as I can remember. And, you know, as a kid, I would you know, make movies with my friends. I had a film club for a while. I worked in film and TV and, uh, you know, in doing background work and, uh, you know, bit parts and things like that. And all of that sort of had to go to the wayside uh, when I started ballet because, you know, it's the sort of thing that kind of takes up all of your time and, and teachers expect you to be 100% dedicated, which is why I was so surprised when I got to IU that they were so supportive when I would say, hey, you know what? I want to do a dance film project. I, I want to combine, I want to find a way to combine my two interests so that they don't have to collide. And instead of, you know, being met with skepticism, I was met with support. And uh, Alan Barker was my biggest champion as a freshman trying to, you know, come up with this project. And I pitched it to the innovation competition and I got into contact with all sorts of people that I reached out to in the media school, professors, you know, and, and I got connected with a graduate student who was looking for a, a thesis project. And together we produced a dance film that had an original score, an original choreography, and, and starred the Jacobs dancers. And that went on to win Best Film at an LA film festival. And, and I knew, even before it won that accolade, that this was not a one-off thing, that I had an opportunity to not just develop as a, as a dancer, but to develop as a filmmaker at the same time. And that was really exciting for me. So I, I, I jumped on every opportunity I could to get involved with the media school, but also to forge collaborative partnerships with whoever was interested in working with me. And, you know, a testament to the kind of great relationships that you build up to in, in college, uh, I, I wound up working with the same people again and again. And we would try, you know, new spins, new takes on on the kind of formula for a, a narrative dance film that I set out to do it with that first movie, that first movie being Shift. And so, you know, we did several more films, each one kind of involving faculty members as choreographers or even performers, and they kept getting into festivals. And then finally, I, I decided that I needed to direct my own film and, and try and find an artistic voice uh, of my own. And this was during the pandemic, but I had this idea to do a, a black and white dance film on Kodak film. So shot in that very traditional medium, you know, with a standard aspect ratio and, and that kind of grain. And we did that in the fall of 2020. I found a PhD student who specializes in those analog film formats. And that wound up being Chisel. Michael Vernon choreographed, it featured an original score by a Jacobs master's student. And it's done very well, I have to say, at, at festivals. A couple months later, Sarah Roth approached me about doing a music video uh, with John Raymond. And with that, I went even deeper down the whole analog 
uh, film tunnel, and and we shot that mostly on eight millimeter to give that give it that really nostalgic kind of grainy look. And I'm very proud of that too. That was a heck of a lot of fun, and and that thing is called North, and you can find it on YouTube. At this point, having graduated, I kind of have the distinction of being both an alum of IU Ballet Theater, but also a performer as well. And I occupy that unique kind of position because I'm a master's student now pursuing an MPA at the O'Neill School. I'm very interested in, in using that for uh, leadership positions in, in both the arts and media world. And while I'm continuing my education, I'm also continuing to dance with IUBT. And I'm also dancing throughout Indiana as well. Moreover, I'm able to continue this wonderful film work with these wonderful creative partners that I have. Currently, we're working on a on a documentary on IU Ballet, a kind of inside fly-on-the-wall look at what it's like to be a ballet dancer on a daily basis, to take you kind of behind the, you know, the fancy promotional, you know, ads and, and, and videos and, and show you in real terms what being a college dancer is like and and what the routine is, the triumphs, the struggles, and tell that story because I think it's a story worth telling or at least a moment in time. And, and that's one of the things I'm interested in as a filmmaker, capturing moments, precious small moments in time. Uh, this spring, I'm sort of setting out on another phase of my filmmaking career. I'm doing a narrative dance musical short film. And that's kind of fulfilling my goal, which is to take the dance films that I've been doing, or the ballet films, or these kind of visual tone poems, if, if, if you want to call them that, and, and build a story around them. And I'm very excited about that. I think it's going to be a, a great stretch for us, and I think we're going to have a really great story. We're going to have really great talent. We're going to have great music. We're going to have great dancing. We're going to have great acting. Uh, so I'm very, very excited about that. The Jacobs School of Music uh, Ballet Department has, has uh, given me a lot of knowledge and value. It's, it's taught me what it is to approach my art form from a truly intellectual standpoint, which is not so much to say that you're intellectualizing or, or trying to overthink your art form, but more that you're trying to communicate clearly as an expressive artist. And, and that's, I think, what I got from the IU Jacobs School of Music. To keep up on all of Robert's activities, visit him online at robertstephenmack.com. Now, to round out this episode of The Pod, here's my conversation with the great Sarah Roth. Sarah Roth, thank you for joining me on Reminiscing in Time. When did your association with the IU School of Music begin? Oh, well, wow. I date back pretty far. I came to Bloomington in fall of 2000 as a graduate of high school, headed into what I considered the bigger world of ballet study um, at a huge university. So I was a wide-eyed freshman in 2000. I studied here at the Jacobs School of Music or then the, the Indiana University School of Music Ballet Department until 2003. 
when I graduated with a bachelor's of science with an outside field in education, and then went on to Boston Ballet Company, where I danced for 14 years. And upon retiring from Boston Ballet um, in 2017, there was no better place to come back to and work than the Jacob School of Music, where I had begun my more intensive years of ballet study. The word retirement sounds so uh, shocking to attribute to such a, a young person uh, <laughs> early on in their career. But, you know, how, how long does the average career of a ballet dancer last? Well, I mean, that's a very astute observation. Martha Graham, uh, a famous, actually modernist, uh, modern choreographer, uh, used to say that a dancer dies two deaths. They die mm. a death at the end of their stage performance career, which is usually about around the age of 30, I would say is an average. Um, some stay much longer than that. Some, some end their careers much sooner than that. She said they, that a dancer dies two deaths, one at the end of their stage performance career and one at the end of their life on this earth. And um, I think that's a morbid way of looking at it. I actually think that Indiana University gives dancers this gift of two lives, right? You have the life of your relevance on stage as a dancer and then Indiana University because of the way this school of music is, it gives dancers this second life of relevance where you impact the world with this other nugget of wisdom beyond ballet that you've been cultivating uh, since undergraduate uh, studies. So um, I did retire uh, at the, the ripe old age of 30, I guess it was 34. Sorry, math is really, I'm really great at math, but this is bad uh, age math I try and stay away from. Um, but I was 34 when I retired. So I was about uh, the average age for retirement and, and looked on to this, this beautiful transition here. Age math, it's always good to give yourself uh, a couple more years when you can, right? It is, exactly. Yeah, you want to, age math is like the opposite of dog years. You try and stay out there. <laughs> You know, the the rigor of our department of ballet seems pretty intense to me as an outsider. How does the Jacobs Department of Ballet resemble a professional company? How does it differ? Well, I mean, it's more intense. I think that's what people think is, is oh, these are students who somehow couldn't make it. Because the ballet stigma is you start you start early or you don't start at all. Like you, you get into a professional company at 18 or there's this second secondary choice, which is college, but it's actually at this Jacob School of Music, you're working in what is essentially a professional company. Our IU Opera and Ballet Theater is essentially a professional company. And then on top of that, you're taking a full academic load. So I say to, Every potential student, I say, this is not a break. You are coming into one of the most intensive times in your life. But then what happens is after this intensive period of dual citizenship as an academic and a professional professional level dancer, the only reason it's not considered a professional company is because our dancers aren't paid that dual citizenship leads you to entering the ballet world and saying, oh my gosh, this is so much easier. 
this is so much easier than I thought. So we are the same as a professional world. We start our day with technique class every single day. We then have intensive training um, in point and partnering, which is a little different than a professional company, but very much parallels a conservatory environment. And then we head into rehearsals and our dancers have intensive rehearsals preparing for Again, our professional level productions that hit the stage at the Musical Arts Center. And then uh, before that, they attend academics for one or two hours. And then sometimes after that, they attend academics for one or two hours. Then they have homework. And then I hope they socialize a bit and have a bit of lifestyle normalcy. And then they retire to bed for a little bit and (laughs) they wake up and they do it all over again. So I think there's something to be said for, again, the parallels to the professional world, but also allowing this particular age group to be somewhat normal in their thoughtful exploration of self at this particular age. So uh, it's a really unique environment. Dual citizenship is such (laughs) an interesting way of looking at it um, between, you know, being an artist and also, uh, the academic side. I'm so impressed by how well-rounded the ballet students are here. Many of them get a bachelor's degree with an outside field in, as you did, education or arts management, other uh, degree opportunities too. How does our model differ from other conservatories? Do other conservatories offer those same academic opportunities or is it a meat factory? you should come with me on tours and ask ask me this question. This is exactly what we have that is so special is we allow these students of intensive ballet training, the opportunity to explore the resource of a big 10 university. They're paying for a big 10 university education. They deserve the academic freedom of a big 10 university. And By that, I mean, traditional conservatory studies lead to what's called a BFA, a Bachelor's of Fine Arts, where you're incredibly intensive in the study of your art form and its history. You discuss fascinating principles of the art form and its exploration, but you don't hone that many skills that would lead you to success beyond the ballet studio in future years. And I'm pigeonholing that degree a little bit, but Mm -hmm. what I'm saying is we have dancers who want to do pre-med, where they want to do pre-physical therapy training. They wanna do psychology and nutrition. Uh, They want to explore what they could offer the world in arts management, being an artistic director of a ballet company someday. Um, That thoughtful exploration of every potential future beyond the ballet studio is what we offer. And I always am telling students this, just because uh, an outside field hasn't yet been obtained by a dancer here, it doesn't mean it's not possible. So it's really the field of study is as open as dancers need it to be to choose who they want to be in the future. We also have had students uh, double major. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had a dancer double major in finance from the Kelly School of Business. And uh, she was actually eligible to graduate in three years uh, with a double major from Kelly and the Jacob School of Music Ballet Department. She ended up taking an extra year just to prepare herself for auditions. I mean, these students really have this opportunity to be 
the leaders. And, and it's often been said that ballet dancers make these excellent students. And I don't feel braggadocious in saying so, like the focus, the determination, their ability to think creatively and pivot, to listen effectively and implement directions well is all a part of the chemistry of the ballet dancer. And so allowing, you know, that force that you're creating in the ballet classroom to unleash itself on the world at large is really important for the world that these great minds that would be kind of constrained in the most beautiful way to the ballet studio for their ballet career to give them that liberation afterwards to still feel relevant, but in a new way is really, really important. That's such a great perspective. Whether formally or maybe informally or indirectly, are you also training your students to be teachers? Yes, absolutely. They all take pedagogy. So they're all taking a course through which they study the art of teaching and practice teaching actively. So they are absolutely studying to be teachers. And that's just good. I mean, that's just like good sense. Because at any given point in your career, whether you enjoy teaching and want it to be a part of your legacy in life in this art form, you will have to teach. Even if you're, you know, you, John Porter, are a soloist with a ballet company and you're performing, the development office might ask you to teach a glass after class class to the board or to the young partners or the young donors. So the ability for you to be able to be an asset to the company as a dancer who is able to articulate and teach is really important. And also the study of teaching in general is just great for public speaking, organized thought uh, and communication, which is the backbone of any any professional level position where you engage with other human beings. And there are teaching opportunities here for them, correct? There's the pre-college ballet department in which several of your students participate, am I right? Yes, exactly. So we have a pre-college program for students age three up to 18 years old. And so many of our majors teach for that program. That's actually an outside employment opportunity also for dancers here where they can earn money. I mean, it's always good to have spending money. I remember putting that money directly towards my bursar bill uh, yeah. when I was a student here. Um, just anytime the check came in <laughs> to the IU credit okay. union uh, from the ballet department uh, pre-college program, I would just turn it right in to pay uh, pay a little bit down on my bursar. But that is important extracurricular money making for them. And it's also just a great opportunity to engage with younger populations, inspire young dancers and teach. Who are some of your faculty colleagues here? We have the most wonderful faculty probably of anywhere in the world. And I know that that's just, that's just the most subjective statement ever. But um, we have um, Carla Corbez, who was a principal dancer with Pacific Northwest Ballet here. And she's just a savant at human compassion and understanding. She offers a lot of uh, therapeutic advice to our students. And she's also just a brilliant artist who's able to compel the next generation to be the best most thoughtful dancers they can be. Constantly asking questions. Carla's always asking, how can we make the world a better place mm. for dancers? Kira Nichols danced for George Balanchine and Jerome Robbins directly. She wow. is a direct line to that amazing lineage of art history here in our nation. She offers our dancers such beautiful understanding of music, 
of artistic choice and clarity of steps and timing. I mean, she's just an incredible force for good and force for uh, insight into all that we might be as dancers. Michael Vernon is a legend in the ballet world. He's here. He was the chair prior to my arrival in 2017. He's an excellent programmer. The ballets that he's brought to this IU Opera and Ballet Theater are incredible. The repertoire under his leadership was incredible. And he continues to offer uh, great programming advice um, to all of us as we program uh, the future of IU Opera and Ballet Theater. He's an excellent teacher and pedagogue. He's been all over the nation and there's almost nobody in the ballet world who isn't connected to him in some way. Sasha Jeans is the resident choreographer of Charlotte Ballet, but we get to have him on faculty. He's an associate professor here, an incredible choreographer. He'll be choreographing a very, very new special production for us next year that I'm not sure if it's being announced yet, but I'm teasing it a little bit. And he's just so clear with the dancers about what he wants from them artistically and the standard they should meet professionally. Nobody knows better. He was the former associate artistic director of Charlotte Ballet as well. And the work that he did with Jean-Pierre Bonafou, who used to be here at Indiana right. University Ballet Theater as one of the former leaders, um, the work that Sasha did with Jean-Pierre set him up for, I mean, he could be an artistic director with great success anywhere in this nation and he chooses to be here at Indiana University. And then Christian Klaassens, who danced for Dutch National Ballet, did a tremendous amount of work with Stanley Williams in New York City and brings this amazing nurturing guiding force to our dancers. He also uh, choreographs quite often for the opera. He incorporates our dancers into his pieces and he's just such a special kind-hearted spirit. And I think if there was you know, one word to encapsulate our program, it's kind of professional nurturing. I guess that's two words, but that idea that we do hold students to the highest standard, but every single faculty member is strongly invested in their success. It seems as if the faculty is much more robust in modern times than years ago. Is that, is, is that a fair uh, observation? It's absolutely fair. I don't know how we got this lucky, but right now we have three full professors. Two of us are going up to be a professor so that we're applying for that process of promotion. And then we have a senior lecturer. So when I was here, for example, in 2003, there were three full professors, the then chair, Virginia Sesbrin, her husband, Jacques Sesbrin, who did a majority of the choreography, excellent human beings, and Violette Faraday, who was a legend, an absolute legend in the ballet world. And then we had one other position. It was a much smaller department. Granted, it was about 40 dancers at that time. We're now around 60 dancers, but wow. still to have six major players and two brilliant adjuncts actually working with our dancers, it's really, really great. And then there's you, Sarah Roth, chair oh, yeah, of ballet. You mentioned your tenure at, at Boston earlier. Where else in the world have you performed? All of my performance career, really, with the exception of some guest artist opportunities, was with Boston Ballet. And I 
really loved every element of that company. I felt like I was constantly learning. And if I didn't feel like I was learning in the ballet studio, I would run around that building and find as many different places to learn as possible. So I got to teach for the adaptive dance program for children with Down syndrome and autism spectrum disorder and curriculum right for them as well. And did a lot of work for the development department and the public relations um, office. Started writing for dance magazine. Uh, with Boston Ballet, I got the opportunity to tour all over Spain twice. I've, I've performed all over Spain. I've performed in uh, Seoul, South Korea. Uh, I've performed at the Coliseum in London and in Helsinki, Finland. And uh, we went to New York City uh, as well and did the Coke Theater on tour. So I feel like I've gotten the opportunity to uh, spread my joy a lot of different places, which has been a great gift. How does your own professional experience help shape or influence your students? There's no teacher whose professional experience doesn't doesn't influence the, the student experience. I feel like I always was a part of the ensemble. Even when I got to perform principal and soloist roles, I feel like my heart and soul was always in how can we as a group work together to create the best possible picture on stage. And I feel like that infiltrates my teaching at all times. Like if you're correcting one individual, all individuals should be listening and watching because it saves time for the group. If we're in rehearsal, presence matters. If you're there, everyone gets to observe the corrections. If you're not there, everything has to be repeated. There's so much of that idea of everyone needs attention and the strength of the group is how strong everyone are, are able to be. So I feel like I, I'm when I teach class, I'm trying to get around the studio and see as many students as possible and give everyone a nugget of wisdom to help them along the way or think of in that moment. So I feel like kind of in, in my career, my own thirst for this collaboration leads to this collaborative mentality when I'm leading the group in the studio. You're also good at giving everyone individualized attention. Um, I I noticed that it's never Professor Roth or Professor Vernon. It's Sarah and Michael and Christiane. A lot of other departments across the school, too, have have adopted this over the years. Being on a first-name basis with your professors and your mentors, does that allow an even deeper level of relationship intimacy um, between the professor and the student? Yeah, I think so. I don't know why it's so funny because I still, my growing up, I trained at the Frederick School of Classical Ballet with Joyce Morrison. And in my mind, it's still Mrs. Morrison. Like even as I'm an adult, I don't think I would ever say Joyce. This is where we are uh, not just a school because every professional company environment I've ever been, it's a first name basis. Yeah. Because you're, you are of a different role in the studio. There's the front of the studio, which is the artistic staff, which is this outside eye helping and guiding the dancers in the space to be mm-hmm. the best they can be. It's not the way it perhaps was back when it, it was this Eurocentric art form with class level and, and things happening like we are colleagues. Is, yeah. the, is that feeling is we are colleagues working to better the art form together. So I think maybe it lends itself to that collaboration more that it's not like 
dictator and dictatee. It's like, we are both working on you becoming the best version of yourself. And so in that sense, I think it creates maybe a more approachable nature of that professor student. It should never be overly familiar. Mm -hmm. There should be support and emotional support, but this should be a collaborative, mutual respect. I am giving my respect to the student. The student is giving their respect to me. But in order to do that, we don't have to label that respect as professor or, you know, prefix is not necessary. That's such a generous and gracious psychology that you use words as as a master performer and a master teacher, such as colleague and the sort of reciprocal nature of student and teacher making the art form, making the field better. That's that's a really beautiful way of, of thinking of it. Over the years, with the exception of your faculty growing, what are some of the strides that the IU Ballet Theater has encountered? How has the department evolved? Oh, well, we've increased in size, which is always a great thing. We've we've increased our numbers. Our student population has changed from 40 to 60. We were always doing at least one larger work on each program, but Michael really brought this amazing evolution of professional level repertoire and stagers into the ballet department. And I think that the respect that we've garnered in the sense of where our students get placed upon graduation has intensified. So the benchmark of a good program really ends up being how well do those students do when they head out into the world to try and get jobs. And I do think since arriving, we've had almost 100% of our students placed with a, a place to dance upon graduation. And last year, we had actually all of our students who wanted to get a job placed in a professional company where they were getting paid. Wow. It's really huge. I mean, even if it's an entry-level position, receiving some compensation for dancing this day and age is not the norm for a first position believe it or not, in the ballet world. So it was really great uh, to feel that success. So I think that that's that's the main growth. We've always had this incredible connection, like I said, to the Balanchine Trust and that Balanchine legacy. Um, First first with Patricia McBride and Jean-Pierre, former New York City ballet dancers. And then with Violette Verity, who was here for just such a beautiful period of time. And then Kira Nichols now. So that relationship has always been very hearty and just such an important nourishment for our dancers' spirits as they prepare themselves to head out into the professional world to know that those professional level opportunities here will always be there for them is really important. This place has always had this mantra of professional level training. Uh, I think even though the repertoire has gotten more and more contemporary and uh, versatile in the type of dancer that we are trying to prepare for the professional world, I think that there's always been this steady line of we want to be creating the most intensely driven, committed, passionate artists who also are able to think with a greater perspective of the world. I think when the full faculty, this group that's currently here came together in 2017, 
I think there was definitely a stepping up of the requirements of the program because it had it had brought this force to the faculty where again now our student ratio from going you know from being like a teacher to student ratio of like one to 20 which it was before 2017 it's yeah. now one to 10 which means you know you cannot hide here <laughs> we will we will uh root out your problems and help you solve them no matter what so i think that that component will always step up the game of any institution if students really know they're being looked after and they're being held equally all of them to the same high standard you have so much to be proud of what memory sticks out most in your mind violette verdi is one of those special people who could look at you and see a part of your spirit that you didn't even know existed. And she would speak directly to that part of you and somehow bring it out. And she didn't do that just with me. She did that with every single person that she met. So anyone you meet who's ever met Violette says, you know, oh, she changed my life and here's how. And I think being here and having been with her and seeing now the way Carla and the faculty engage with the students carrying on a little bit of that spirit is really beautiful. But that, I know that's not one particular moment. I think one thing I would share is that I used to, when I was a student here, you could, you could break into the Mac at night. I'll, I won't say how. And I remember I lived in Reed dorm across the street and I used to, you know, be, I was very thoughtful and and trying to figure out who I was. And I would spend a lot of time on that Mac stage in the dark at like 11.30 PM, writing in my journal, like sitting on the edge of the stage by myself with the ghost light behind me, which is just so like kind of cinematic, I guess. But I, I remember there was one particularly like confusing time in 2017 when I'd returned here and there was a lot of turmoil in the department. And it was an early, early age of me leading the department. And I remember going to the Mac at night and now I have a key. (laughs) And I went to the stage and I just sat there and I thought about my life. And I thought, I think it's so amazing to live your life in a circle where you're able to somehow give back and figure things out in a different way. Like I'm an adult now here. And what's the difference between being a student here and being an adult here and trying to remember those differences and honor both versions of yourself because I'm engaging with students that are that person that I was when I was sitting on the stage trying to figure out what the heck the world was. I encourage everyone listening to this who went to Indiana University to just come back and let those old spirits of who you were kind of wash over you because it's really, really interesting to think of all that your journey has brought your way and that we're all still connected to this place somehow. And it's offered such incredible opportunity and inspiration and set us all on a pathway towards who we are to this day. I just honored this school so much and I'm so very, very profoundly lucky to be here. It's been such a marvelous homecoming, and we're all so very lucky for your leadership and your artistic impression on the institution.
I'd like to thank my guests on Reminiscing in Time this week, Michael Vernon, Robert Stephen Mack, and Sarah Roth. Be sure to catch An Evening of William Grant Still with original choreography by Sasha Janes this February 4th, 5th, 11th, and 12th at the IU Musical Arts Center. And that's our show. For Reminiscing in Time, I'm John Christopher Porter. Thanks for listening. Take care of yourselves and each other. Wear your masks and be safe. Our theme music, Danabar, is by Luke Gillespie and performed by the composer and members of the IU Jazz Studies faculty on the album Moving Mists from Patois Records. The Reminiscing in Time podcast is produced by the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music. Find us on Spotify, social media, or music.indiana.edu.